My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. So to get started here today, I'm going to start with a little bit of an exercise. I'm going to put, in a moment here, I'm going to put a beginning of a sentence up on the screen. And I want you to do something that's actually going to be a little bit harder than you think it is. And that is to capture the first thought that comes to your mind to finish the sentence. Okay, it's hard because we're really good in our brains. Our brains are really sharp in the sense of like we, a first thought will come in, but it's not a good thought or it's not the thought I want to have. And so we edit it or shape it or cover over it or something like that. Okay, so just want to be aware of that. So first thought that comes to mind when you finish this sentence. My life should be. Okay, did you get it? I mean, the first thought. Did you capture it? Maybe it's a word, maybe it's a phrase, maybe even an image. Our brain works that way as well. It gives us an image of what our life ought to be like. Now, I want you to hang on to that for a moment because I have a couple variations of this. The next one. When I'm living the best way I know how, my life should be. Okay, this may be the same answer, but maybe you come today and you're not in a space that you want to be in, and so you finish it differently. But for a lot of us, it's the same answer because we have a sense that we're living life the best way we know how, and, and based on that, our lives ought to be. And then the last one. Because I gave my life to Jesus, my life should be. Now, I can't speak for all in the room, but I'm pretty confident in saying that for many of us, if we're gut level honest, we'll finish those sentences with words like easy, or at least not too difficult, trouble free, understandable. That's a big one for me. My life should be understandable. I should know what's going on. My life should be successful or comfortable. Words like that. We may even have a few Bible verses that we cling to to support our idea of that. And for many of you, maybe a favorite Bible verse of yours is like one of my favorites, Jeremiah 29, 11. For the, the Lord, for I have, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. A verse that's well loved and by the way, often taken completely out of context. But that's another sermon for another time. What I'm getting at here is our expectations. What can we expect from this life? In other words, what does this life owe us? Or what do we deserve? 
frankly, even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our expectations are more shaped by culture than they are by the Bible. You might even say that for many of us, when it comes to life expectations, that we are infected with a virus more contagious and arguably more harmful than the coronavirus. It's the virus we might know of as affluenza. Affluenza. It's a basic assumption that we can meet our expectations through material means. In other words, if I have enough wealth, if I have enough stuff, if I have the stuff I want, then I can live a mostly trouble-free, easy, comfortable, and successful life. We even in the church can project this onto Jesus. If I have enough Jesus, I can live a mostly trouble, easy, uh, successful, comfortable life. Now, we may not say that out loud, but again, that's why it's important to catch those quick first thoughts because deep in the recesses of our hearts, we tend, many of us tend to have this expectation. And here's the deal. Jesus did not promise to meet those expectations. He didn't. And in fact, the passage we're going to look at today makes that abundantly clear. So here we are in this teaching series we're calling Believe because we want to see Jesus and we want to hear Jesus so that we might put our trust in Jesus and get at the abundant eternal life he promised. We're taking a look at Jesus through the lens of one of those who walked most closely with him, this man named John. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been going through an extended block of teaching that Jesus gave right before he died for the sins of the world. If you're here last week, are you able to tune in last week? Pastor Jay brought us into John chapter 15, where we have the familiar, for many of us, familiar metaphor of the, of the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. He also introduced God the Father as the gardener. Jesus introduced it. Pastor Jay talked about it. But God is the gardener, and the gardener prunes the branches that bear fruit so that they might bear more fruit, that they might experience more joy in being who they're designed to be. So I'm going to start where Pastor Jay left off, the middle of chapter 15, and we're going to run all the way through the end of chapter 16. Now, that's a large block of teaching. I'm not going to read all of it. We're going to take a look at a lot of it because in, in one way to look at that next block of teaching is Jesus, in a sense, explaining the metaphor of pruning. And as the metaphor implies, it's not going to be very comfortable. So in this passage we're going to look at, Jesus makes two promises. Okay, the first one, it's not going to be very pleasant. But the second one, it's pretty wonderful. So let's dive into our text today. We're in halfway through John chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 18. If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. This is Jesus talking. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them. But now, that, now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. 
If I hadn't done, shown such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. This fulfills what is written in their scriptures. They hated me without cause. I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. The time is coming when those who kill you will even think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I am telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. Well, isn't that nice? So the first promise Jesus makes to his followers is this. The world will hate you and you will suffer as a result. Plainly speaking, if you, when you disciple yourself to Jesus, you will come into conflict with the values, with the assumptions, and with the powers of this world, and you will suffer as a result. Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't pretend it happened to him. It will happen to you. That's in a sense of expectations. That ought to be our expectations. Now, standing in sharp contrast to what Jesus said, many of us assume something is wrong when we encounter trouble, right? Do, do you not have the same knee-jerk reaction I have? You know, if something's wrong, it's like, why is this happening to me? Am I right? Jesus says, of course it's going to happen to you. It happened to me, it'll happen to you. Which means, think about this, which means when, when we, we ought not question when we suffer, we ought to be questioning if we're not suffering. Please understand, Jesus isn't some kind of masochist saying, ooh, I can't wait to give him some pain. No, no, Jesus understands that there's more going on in the pain. When, when we suffer in his name, there's something important going on. There's an important outcome of that. In fact, he lets us know a little bit more about that outcome with an important metaphor he introduces in chapter 16. In chapter 16, verse 21, where he says, It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. Simply put, there's more going on when we suffer for Jesus' sake. What we experience here on earth is only part of the story and not even the most important part. That's why this metaphor of childbirth is so important. It's perfect. I mean, what woman longs for labor? I can't wait to get pregnant so I can go through labor and delivery. What do you think, ladies? Do I have an a, a witness in the congregation? Is that what you look forward to? No. I mean, labor won't make any woman's list of favorite life experiences. I, I remember the labor and delivery of my four kids like it was yesterday. I mean, if you don't know my wife Amy and I, one thing you should know is that we are get her done kind of people. We, we work hard and we train hard at no matter what we set our minds to. Which means when it came to, when Amy got pregnant, it makes sense that she, what she said to me, she said, I want to treat this more like an athletic experience than a medical experience. I mean, this is what my body was designed to do. Let's do this. And so we trained for it. I mean, she was the athlete. I was like, a, I was a coach. And so I was there to encourage her and support her through the process. We took extensive childbirth classes. We paid for on our own. And, and we learned all these different laboring positions so that 
This is all code for she wouldn't need an epidural. No pain medications of any kind. That's how she approached it, which makes sense if you knew her. And so after all of that training, after all of that preparation, when it came time for the baby to be coming and the contractions started, we were ready. Or so we thought. Reality is we didn't have a clue. But we didn't know we didn't have a clue, right? We were ready. Then the contractions started and wow. I mean, Amy, she, 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 after the contractions are going for a little bit, she looks at me with these eyes, these horror in her eyes. And, and, and she, like her eyes communicated to me, this hurts. And they also communicated to me, do something. <laughs> so I got busy helping and we tried all the different laboring positions that we learned and her pain and her suffering were insatiable. And it didn't seem like anything I did mattered. Now, afterwards, when we were looking back on it, and, she's, and I asked her, what, what was the most important thing that I did? Interesting enough, her answer is a lot like what we see Jesus doing in this passage. Her answer to me, what, what was the most important thing I did was remind her about where she is in the process. And to remind her that, that what's going on now means your baby is near. Your baby is near. Interestingly enough, uh, I got to share in Amy's pain during the laboring process. I did. See, we're about six hours into the laboring, and we were in the hospital by this point. We did a lot of laboring at home, but during the hospital at this point, and she was exhausted, as you can imagine. And in between a couple of the contractions, she remembered a, 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 a laboring position we hadn't yet tried. It's actually a fabulous position because it's very intimate uh, that you do it. So I would actually get behind her and then she would lean into me and then I would hold her body through the contraction. She says, we haven't tried that. Can we try that? And I said, absolutely. And so we're in the hospital this time. You got the hospital beds a little higher up, right? And so I grabbed her left hand with this hand and then I reached behind her head and I, and, and I grabbed her right hand with this hand and then I was gonna kind of work my way up onto the bed behind her, right? But in the middle of that process, she had a contraction and she responded by yanking on both of my hands. And I'll tell you about ripping this shoulder right out of the socket. Some of the most intense pain I've ever experienced in my entire life. I was proud of myself then, and I'm still proud of myself, that through the course of that contraction, as she was yanking on my arm, it felt like I was pulling my arm out of socket. I didn't say a word. I just couldn't imagine saying, Amy, dear, uh, would you stop pulling on my arm? That hurts. My mama didn't raise a fool. But here's the thing. After our baby was born, all thoughts of the pain ended because we had this beautiful baby girl. That joy was, was so amazing, we decided to do it three more times. <laughs> According to Jesus, the same is true for those of us who put our trust in him. We will suffer, but one day our suffering will be turned into joy. Now, ultimately, Jesus is pointing us to heaven, but, but we do get glimpses of this on earth. For example, maybe you, you're, you're sharing your trust in Jesus with a coworker or a neighbor, and you're getting mostly indifference or maybe even hostility about it. And then one day after you, per, you persisted, that person puts a trust in Jesus. 
Some of you have tasted of that. It is an amazing joy to see somebody else put their trust in Jesus. Though a lot of times leading up to that, it's hardship. Or when you're, you're, you've, you got married and you, and you decided that in your marriage you're going to follow Jesus together. And then you reach that point in your marriage where it, uh, uh, love just seems to grow cold and all seems lost. And, and everyone around you is saying, bail, you don't deserve this. But you persist. You say, no, I want to put my hope and trust in Jesus. He's the one who called us together. We're going to live this through. And you persist through the trouble. And you taste of a joy on the other side that comes through reconciliation. That's an amazing thing. There's a love that's available through the trouble that's not available any other way. And you taste, you get a glimpse of that joy. Yeah. We do get glimpses of the joy. And those glimpses of joy point us to a day when all will be joy. So the promise, the first promise Jesus makes in this passage is that the world will hate you and you will suffer as a result of being Jesus' disciple. But Jesus isn't merely inviting us to toughen up and to just endure the hardship by willpower. No, he's inviting us to a greater dependence in him. Jesus wants to grow our relational trust in him. And how does he do that? Well, that brings us to the second promise in this passage. We find it beginning in John 15, verse 26, where we read this. But I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. So there is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you all about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. Through his spirit, God is with us. In other words, Jesus doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. Now, we don't learn everything about the Holy Spirit in this passage, but we learn a lot. And so I just want to highlight a few things that are really important to know about the Holy Spirit that we see in this passage. And the first thing we learn is his identity. His identity. He is God. Now, Jesus didn't come right out and say, Jesus, this Holy Spirit is God, and I don't know why. But he decided that, that, he, to that that's not what he's going to cover. And so what we do see here, interestingly enough, not only in this verse, but in other verses, is that Jesus re, re, uh, refers to the spirit with a personal pronoun, he. he doesn't, it's not an impersonal pronoun. It's not like some kind of force in the universe or something like that. No, it's a personal pronoun. You also see here in this passage and in other passages that you have the father and you have Jesus, the son, and then you have the spirit and they're, they're interchangeable. There's some kind of relationship going on and all of them have divine qualities to them. And when the first followers of Jesus, you know, in the, in the early years of the church, when they're looking at this, this mystery of who is the spirit and, and how does the spirit and Jesus and the father work together? This is where we come up with that fundamental doctrine of the church, this fundamental teaching of the church. And that is the God as Trinity, three persons, one God. It's a great mystery. It's an amazing mystery though. We'll never fully understand it, but the more we lean into it, the more we pursue God as three and God as one, it's an amazing thing that we can learn about who God is and what life's all about. 
So he is God. We see that here, right there with the Father, God the Father and God the Son. The second thing we learn in this passage is his, his role. His role is that of advocate. In Greek, the original language John wrote in the word translated advocate is paraclete. Now the closest image in our world would be that of a trial lawyer in a courtroom. Okay? And, and we see advocate here. You see, you see language in, in this verses and in, in, in the first part of chapter 16. It's language is like we're in a courtroom. And then interestingly enough, you see the spirit on the one hand kind of like a prosecutor. He's bringing judgment against the world because of its sin. But on the other hand, he's kind of like a defense attorney where, where the world is bringing, is, is bringing things against Jesus and the spirit is defending Jesus. Interestingly enough, in this passage, we see what our role is. And that is, and you must testify about me because you've been with me. So just to make sure we get the roles correct. The Spirit's role is to prosecute the world. The Spirit's role is to defend Jesus, which means that's not our role. We get that mixed up sometimes. That we think we need to somehow convict the world of its sin. Or somehow we need to defend Jesus from accusations on the world. No, that's what the Spirit's job is. Our job is to testify as to what Jesus has done in us, to testify what Jesus has done in all of, his, of history. That's, that's our role. The challenge is, is sometimes we stand so apart from the world that we just and point fingers at the world that we have nothing to testify about to the world and we have no relationship with the world. But on the other hand, sometimes we're so cozy with the world, we don't realize the world around us needs, it needs conviction. Our job is to testify in the sphere that we have to what Jesus has done, who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. So that's the, the role of the spirit, the purpose of the spirit. We see in John 16, 13, it's to guide us into truth. The spirit will reveal what we need to know when we need to know it. Primarily, the spirit teaches us through the Bible. Now, Peter, who was another one of those guys in the room at that time, later on wrote some letters to some of the early churches and in that, he talked about how the Spirit of God spoke through human beings in order to create the Bible. The Bible is a gift of the Spirit through human writers. And this is how he put it in his second letter. He said, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. Another place where we see the Holy Spirit and God, you know, that's that, that person of the Spirit being one of the Trinity. So the Spirit guides us to truth primarily through the Bible, but also through the wise counsel of others, through circumstances, and the Spirit does speak in our hearts. One thing we can know, though, is the Spirit of God is always speaking, always guiding us to truth. The question is, will we listen? The question also is, can we listen? And we learn to listen. In other words, we shape how we can hear by reading the Bible, by shaping our minds through the Bible. That's why it's so important to read the Bible regularly. And then lastly, the Spirit through the Scripture has one singular goal, and that is to glorify or make much of Jesus. The Spirit points us to Jesus. Now, we can miss what the Spirit says when we're asking the Spirit to to give us what we want or to ask the spirit to, to accomplish what we want to accomplish. That's oftentimes what we're asking the spirit to do. And the spirit's like, no, I want to point you to Jesus. 
I want you to know Jesus because I want you to love Jesus because I want you to follow Jesus because I want you to get in on the abundant eternal life that Jesus promises. That's the Spirit's role or the goal in all of this. He wants you to know Jesus. So the Spirit is God. He advocates for God and God's ways. He guides Jesus' followers towards truth so that they will see Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus and get in on the abundant eternal life that Jesus promised. That's who the Spirit is. That's what the Spirit does. But before I go any further, I want to address some common misconceptions about the Spirit, the things about the Spirit that the Bible doesn't teach. And the first one is, I should feel the Spirit's presence. You may have heard that before. You may have longed for that. So that's where I want to be. The the promise is clear. The Spirit, when you surrender your life to Jesus, the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. And he begins his work of transforming you from the inside out, making you become more like Jesus. That's the promise. Now, you may feel his presence. You may. But his presence doesn't determine, isn't determined by whether or not you feel something. Okay, I'm going to say that again. You may feel the Spirit's presence, but his presence isn't determined by whether or not you feel something. The second thing is I should have some kind of ecstatic experience with the Spirit. Now this is taught by a portion of the, the global church today. That, that, you, that the Spirit of God, that you'll have be baptized in the Spirit and that you'll have an ecstatic experience that goes with that. And the reality is you may have an ecstatic experience, but an ecstatic experience is not promised, nor is it the point. The third thing, I have no part to play in regard to the spirit. Now the spirit is a personal being who has a will of his own, but that doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. I love, love how the apostle Paul put this in his letter to the Galatians. He said, if we live by the spirit then we need to keep in step with the Spirit. Love that. The Spirit's job is to guide us to truth. Our part is to keep in step with him. And for anybody who's taken couples dancing, it's a great metaphor for keeping in step with the Spirit. My wife and I have done that. And one thing that's fundamentally important in couples dancing is that there is one leader and one follower. Now, if you watch a couple dancing, especially one who's really experienced, you don't necessarily even notice that one's leading and one's following because it's just beautiful how they work together. But it all goes wrong often when a follower decides what, the, what we ought to be doing or the follower tries to anticipate what the leader is going to do next. And isn't that often true with us, with the Spirit? We tell the Spirit what the Spirit ought to do in our lives, Or we get ahead and try to anticipate what the Spirit is going to do. And that's when we get ourselves in trouble. Now, some of you may still be wondering, what does this look like practically speaking? And and I just want to offer a couple more thoughts. And I'm talking about this because these are questions that I've asked and and I've been asked. And so I just, in this, the role of the Spirit sometimes can be this mysterious thing. And it is in some ways, but it's practical in other ways. And so when I, when I, somebody asks me about that, I, the first thing I usually say to them is, remember, this is not a problem to solve. This is a relationship to live. Okay. The Spirit of God is a personal being, not a human being, but a personal being that we invited to be in relationship with. And just like any other relationship, it takes time. It takes attention. It takes, it takes a pursuit. It takes an opening to be open to, right? These are, these, it's a relationship, not a problem to solve. 
But there is a spiritual exercise that can help. It's called spiritual breathing. You may have heard of it. it was, it's come up with a guy named, guy named Dr. Bill Bright in the 1960s as a way of trying to say, what does this mean to walk with the spirit? And it looks like, kind of like breathing. This is how he described it. He says, when you become aware of a relational disconnect between you and God because of sin and unbelief. Okay, the process is like breathing. First you exhale. And that's that idea of confessing your sin, confessing your unbelief. And once again saying, I surrender to you, Jesus. Once again. Later on, John, the same guy we're looking at the letter we're looking at now, later on he wrote several other smaller letters to churches. And in one of those letters, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's that idea of exhaling, confessing, okay? And then there's the inhale, which is to thank God for his forgiveness, which has already been accomplished on the cross, We inhale that gratitude and then we ask God's spirit to fill us and empower us and guide us. This is Ephesians 5, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He makes this statement. He says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And in that frame, it isn't much about the the, the alcohol part of that, although that is true. It's also a metaphor that helps us connect to what it looks like. Because when you are under the influence of alcohol, you're under the power of another substance. You're still you, and yet you're something else is partly controlling you, right? In a similar way, when we invite the Spirit to come and to fill us, and it's the idea of asking His Spirit to empower us, and we, again, we want to get in step with what the Spirit is doing. So spiritual breathing, that exercise may help you. Now, just to give you an example, what that might look like, let's say you, you set up a meeting with a, a friend or a family member, a coworker, you want to share with them something that the spirit of God, that, that, that Jesus has done in your life. You want them to know Jesus and you set up this appointment with them. You start talking about what Jesus has done in your life and they respond to you with maybe with cynicism or, or indifference or maybe even outright hostility. And in that moment, when you're receiving this, this sense of rejection, the sense of assault, maybe even verbally or something, you may in your heart, like have start to have this anger build up. You may even start to have these thoughts about that person like, well, well, if only you or you don't even know, right? Maybe even say them. But let's say you, in that moment, you, you hear the whisper of God's spirit reminding you and guiding you to the truth you've learned. Maybe even from this passage. Maybe you're even reading in John 15 and 16 and you're like, oh yeah, it's the spirit's job to convict. It's the spirit's job to guide to truth. My job is to stay in step with the spirit. Okay, and then in that moment, I exhale. I confess once again my unbelief that God, I'm acting as if you aren't here. I'm taking on your role, not mine. Then you inhale. I believe, spirit of God, that that you are with me and that you've got this. It can all happen in a moment just like that. And you can understand that moment even in the pain of rejection that God is working. And in fact, even in the pain of rejection, he's pruning. He's pruning. So Jesus gave us two promises in this passage. Those who put their trust in him, the world will hate you and you will suffer as a result. And the second promise, when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you. So at the end here, I just want to see how these two promises come together in a beautiful way. I think this is the thrust of the passage. We can trust the spirit of God to lead us through trouble into joy. We can trust the Holy Spirit will lead us through trouble into joy. At the end of his teaching about suffering and the spirit, Jesus concluded with this wonderful exhortation. 
In verse 33, he says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus wants his followers to experience a joyful peace. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. And that joyful peace clearly doesn't mean an absence of trials, of hardship. No, Jesus is clear and open about that. Rather, it's the rest that comes by trusting that the Holy Spirit will lead us through the trouble into joy. Don Miller, who's a former president of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, commented on this passage in an amazing way, and I just want to read it to you. He says, as long as a Christian is in the world, he will be pressed as though by a great mob. He will be crushed in spirit as though a great crushing weights were lying on his chest. He will know spiritual anguish like that of a mother in labor. This Jesus has told us. When he speaks, therefore, of peace, it is not the peace of unruffled days, but the inner confidence of the warrior who is weary, thirsty, outnumbered, and wounded, but who fights bravely on, confident of the outcome, assured of victory. We are not saved from, we are, we are saved not from trouble, we are saved in trouble. My friends, when we follow Jesus, we will experience trouble. It's clear that Jesus said that. The trouble in our life here on earth is only part of the story, not even the most important part. Trouble certainly isn't the end of the story. Jesus' promises that we can trust the Holy, that the Holy Spirit will lead us through the trouble into joy. Would you pray with me? It's hard words to hear, hard words to digest, because we don't want the trouble. But I do believe we want the joy and Spirit of God, thank you. Jesus, thank you. That the trouble we experience is not the end of the story. So I just pray for my friends right now in the room, my friends that are online, especially those that right now are going through trouble, especially going through trouble because they've placed their faith in you. Spirit of God, would you remind them of your presence today? Would you take these words that you've given us through John and would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you give us the hope we need to go through the trouble to believe that you will lead us to greater joy? And it's with that promise and with that hope in mind that I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.